Last September, we started a sermon series titled Just Before the Cross. We took a break uh, for Christmas from the series and we are resuming this series now. So I'm going to give us a little bit of a recap on what the series is all about. Um, in this series, we are preaching through what is called as the farewell discourse of Jesus Christ, given to us in John chapters 13 all the way through John chapter 17. Jesus knew that he was going to die on the cross, rise again from the dead, and ascend into heaven. In these four chapters, just before his arrest and his crucifixion, Jesus taught his disciples some crucial lessons in order to prepare them for a time when he would no longer be physically present with him. And these teachings are so relevant to every one of us. And so in this series, we're kind of walking through these four chapters which contain for us the last teachings of Jesus just before he was crucified. Uh, last year, we worked our way through John chapters 13 and 14 when we began the series. And then we looked at all that Jesus taught about the Holy Spirit uh, in, these, uh, in these four chapters. There are some chairs in the front. And then we looked at everything that Jesus taught about the Holy Spirit uh, in these four chapters. In fact, we did, we walked through three sermons specifically on the Holy Spirit. All of those sermons are available online. If you missed any of those, especially the ones on the Holy Spirit, I would really encourage us uh, to go watch them on YouTube. And today we're going to be resuming the series. We're going to be beginning with John chapter 15. And we're going to work our way through the rest of the book of John in our sermon teaching. Uh, all the way till Easter. And we're hoping we'll finish preaching through the second part of the book of John. From 13 onwards uh, by Easter. With that recap, uh, let us look at the Bible passage we're going to be uh, looking at today. It's John 15 verses 1 to 11. It'll come, come up on screen uh, for us. John chapter 15 verses 1 to 11. I am the wine, Jesus said, and my father is the wine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the wine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the wine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and branches and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Uh, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and, also, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just 
as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things, Jesus said, I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. You know, this morning I don't feel like a pastor. I feel like a surgeon with a scalpel in his hands. Fair warning again. I I really uh, felt God minister to my own heart as I was preparing and even through this morning uh, during worship. The first and the most important thing, the most important thing in this passage is that there are only two types of branches. Verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. There are only two types of believers. Two types of people. I wouldn't even say believers. Two types of people. Two types of branches. Branches that bear fruit, which the Father prunes so that it bears even more fruit. And branches that do not bear fruit, that the Father chops away and burns. And we're going to be in this passage, on this passage for two weeks. This week, we're going to be be looking at branches that bear fruit, that the Father prunes so that it becomes even more fruitful. Next week, we will look at branches that do not bear fruit, that the Father chops away and burns. Please don't bunk church next week. Maybe I shouldn't have told you what we're going to be looking at next next Sunday. So this week, branches that bear fruit that Jesus prunes so that we bear even more fruit. In this passage, what do you think it is that Jesus wants the most for us? What is the end objective that Christ wants to bring about in us through what he is teaching us? in this passage. We would quickly and easily infer that the one thing that Jesus wants the most for us is for us to be fruitful. Verse 5, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bear much fruit. Verse 2, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it bears more fruit. Verse 8, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. It may seem to us that what Jesus wants the most in us is for us to be fruitful. But if we really pay pay close attention to the last verse, verse 11, the equation changes completely. After speaking about fruitfulness for 10 verses, Jesus completely changes the frame of the discussion in verse 11, where he says, these things about fruitfulness, I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. In verse 11, Jesus is telling us that fruitfulness is not the greatest goal. Jesus is telling us that our joy in Christ is the greatest goal he has for us. And fruitfulness is part of that. Jesus is saying that all the pruning and all the fruitfulness is all about his joy remaining in us. And that our joy may be full. Jesus is reminding us that fruitfulness leads to joyfulness. And what Jesus wants the most for us is for his joy to remain in him, in, remain in us. That's the greatest goal Jesus has for us in this passage and elsewhere too. 
He wants us to be joyful in Christ. And yet, most of us spend most of our lives with a distinct lack of joy. Benjamin Disraeli, the two-time Prime Minister of UK, once described the great sadness of his life like this. He said, youth was a blunder, manhood a struggle, old age a regret. <coughs> Let me ask each of us as followers of Christ, how much joy do we have in our lives, in our lives right now? As followers of Christ, we are not merely called to experience joy, we are called to experience abundant joy. So how is it that we have come to live such joyless lives? Lives with so little joy. Youth was a blunder, manhood a struggle, old age a regret. As a culture, we are living joyless lives. Everybody is working hard and resting less and less. Nobody is happy. Nobody seems to be content. Where did we lose a joy? This passage invites us to consider three reasons that we have lost our joy in Christ. And here are those three reasons. First, we do not have joy because we choose the wrong wine. Second, we do not have joy because we do not remain in Christ the true wine. And third, we do not have joy because we do not want to be pruned. Three things. We do not have joy because we chose the wrong wine. We do not have joy because we do not remain in Christ the true wine. And third, we do not have joy because we do not want to be pruned. Let's look at all three things. The first thing. We do not have joy because we choose the wrong wine. Verse 15, I am the true wine and my father is the wine dresser, Jesus said. Jesus is not the one to use words loosely. Every word, every sentence he speaks is precise and, and weighty. So when Jesus says he is the true wine, we must infer that there are false wines. And Jesus is using the word true wine to distinguish himself from all the other false wine. So what is the distinction between a true wine and a false wine? A wine is, is that main trunk of a grape tree. A single wine is connected to the roots and all the branches grow out of the wine. It is the wine that provides each of the branches and, and all the leaves with all with the water and all the nutrition that it needs. So in essence, the wine gives nutrients to the branches. The wine does not take anything back from the branches. A wine always only gives to the branches. It does not take anything from the branches. It is this property that, that differentiates a true wine from a false wine. A true wine doesn't take from the branches, but a false wine takes from us. The true wine gives us life, but the false wine sucks the life out of us. 
In a city like Mumbai, there are many false wines that we try to draw life from. A courier is, for example, is one of the examples, is a false wine that we try to, we often seek to remain in, as opposed to remaining in Christ, to abide in. In this metaphor that Jesus is using, wine is a thing that we are drawing life from. That which gives us purpose, that which gives us strength, that which motivates us in life. And so often, most of us try to draw from our careers instead of Christ. We seek to find value, our worth, our significance, our purpose, our meaning, our very life. We rest on our careers instead of resting it on Christ. And in a city like Mumbai, we are, we are vulnerable to move away from Jesus to the, the true wine, to many false wine, false wines like a career. Career, for example. A career is a good thing. It gives us joy, it gives us money, it helps us grow in our skills, it helps us uh, serve others, it, it gives us success. And these are all good gifts from God that we can and we should enjoy. But if a career or anything else becomes the center of our lives, and if we start drawing life from it, we will find that this thing that we have placed in the place of Christ is going to suck the life out of us. The many false false wines. Romance could be a false wine. Our children could be a false false wine. Comfort and and luxury could be a, a false wine. Our reputation Making a name for ourselves could be a false wine. And all of these, any of these, if we love more than Christ, will enslave us and will disappoint us. We do not have joy because we are trying to find life in false wines. Which false wine are we clinging to? That's the first reason we lack joy. The second reason we do, not, we do not have joy, or the second reason we lack joy is this. We do not have joy because we do not remain in Christ, the true wine. I'm sure we've all heard the saying that water flows downhill. That's obvious, right? That's how water flows. Water always flows downhill. When there is a small correction to the statement, Water always flows downhill except in a wine and its branches. In a grape tree and any other tree, the wine moves the water and nutrition upwards from the roots to the branches. A true wine defies the odds. A true wine defies gravity. And similarly, true joy in Christ defies difficult circumstances of life. And there's another difference between a true wine and a false wine. If we remain in any other false wine, our joy will rise and fall with circumstances. We'll be happy when we do well at work and we'll be crushed when we don't do well at work. We'll be happy when when our investments and mutual fund investments are all rising and we'll be sad or at least worried and anxious if they fall down. So in a false wine, 
Our joy is entirely dependent on, on circumstances. False wines can never defy circumstances to give us joy. A false wine cannot move water and nutrition against gravity. Only Christ, the true wine, can give us joy no matter what's happening to circumstances around us. We lack joy because we choose not to remain. We do not remain in Christ, the true wine. You know, every time I've read this passage, I've always wondered, even this time, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, next to Romans chapter 8. And every time I've read this passage, I've always wondered, practically speaking, what does remaining in Christ really look like? For heaven's sake, please tell me. What what does it really mean to abide in Christ? What should I do to really remain in Christ? And this passage gives us two practical things. I want to make it really practical for us on what we need to do to remain in Christ. The first practical thing this passage gives us is in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. To abide in Christ, this passage makes very clear, is to abide in his words. And his words are captured for us in the Bible. Let me make something clear. Jesus is not who you want him to be. Jesus is not who you think he is. Jesus is not who you think is a, is a, would be a good description of him. He is not those. He is who he has revealed himself to be through us, through the Bible. There is no true and complete revelation of Jesus apart from God's word, illuminated to our hearts by God's spirit. To remain in Jesus means to remain in his words. Theologian Simpler Ferguson, he puts it like like this. He says, in a nutshell, abiding in Christ means allowing his word to fill our minds, to direct our wills, and to transform our affections. It means to allowing his word to fill our minds direct our wills and transform our affections. In other words, Ferguson says, our relationship to Christ is intimately connected with what we do with our Bibles. And that's why at UCD we place so much emphasis on reading, meditating and praying through God's word every day. The Seeing Jesus Together journal is a simple tool we use for this. The second very practical thing that this passage tells us about how we are to remain in Christ is there in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Remain in my love, Jesus said. This can seem a little fuzzy. Abide in his love. You know, can you be more practical, please? We can Abiding in the love of Christ, remaining in the love of Christ, involves two things. It involves union and it involves communion. Every true believer in Christ is in a state of full, complete and eternal union with Christ. 
This is our spiritual standing. Legally, in God's economy, this is our spiritual status. This is constant. No matter how you feel, no matter how I feel, this never changes. Whatever happens, our union with Christ, if our faith in Him is indeed real, our union with Christ never changes. Second, every true believer in Christ also has a relationship with Jesus, fellowship with Him. This is what I mean by communion with Christ. And our communion with Christ is constantly changing. Some days we have a good relationship with Jesus. Some days we are indifferent to Him. It's true of me, it's true of you, it's true of every follower of Christ. So to remain in the love of Christ is to have a life where there is no gap between our union with Christ and our communion with Christ. Now every time I I look at this passage, I wonder how can a branch not be connected. It is there. How can it not be connected? Let me let me illustrate this. Using this whole idea of union and communion. Think of a marriage. Every husband and wife are in union with one another. This is their marital status. Nothing can change that. And every husband and wife also have communion with one another, a relationship with one another. Their union is unchanging through all the years of their marriage, but their communion is constantly changing. Every couple has good days, bad days, terrible days, extraordinarily good days. It's all part of the package. So a husband and a wife can be in union with each other and in some seasons not have communion with each other. Similarly, to remain in our is remain in the love of Christ is to have both union and communion with Him. And we lack joy in our lives because so often there is a large gap between our union with Christ and our communion with Him. And that's the second reason we do not have joy. We do not have joy because we do not remain in Christ, the true wine. And this brings us to the third and the last reason we do not have joy in our lives. We do not have joy in our lives because we do not want to be pruned. None of us. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it bears more fruit. Anyone with any experience in a vineyard, I have zero experience, I've only been reading up. Anyone with any experience in a vineyard will tell you that a branch will become, any branch will become less and less fruitful if it is not pruned regularly. In fact, there are seasons in vineyards, if you ever visit one, there are seasons when you you see the pile of pruned branches, you'll be shocked. So much pruning happens year after year after year for the branches to be really fruitful. Pruning involves cutting off the unfruitful parts of a branch so that the rest of the branch bears more fruit. I'm sure pruning is painful. In one sense, 
pruning is cleaning. Uh, in this passage, the Greek word for pruning in the original text actually means cleansing. We're reading from the ESV version of the Bible. If you read the King James version of the Bible, which is a slightly older translation, the word there used in this passage is not pruning. The word used is purging. None of us like this purging. None of us like this cleaning process. We resist it. It's not that we don't want to be fruitful. We all want to be fruitful. None of us resist being fruitful. But we don't want to be pruned. Listen, we just don't understand pruning. As a culture, we just don't get it. So let me, let me make this clear. Pruning is not for backsliding people. Pruning is not for people who are far away from Christ. Pruning is not for people who have drifted away from Jesus. Pruning is not for people who are living their own, own lives. No. Pruning is for good followers of Jesus. Who are good and who are serving. So if you were good in 2023, you know what's coming. We don't get this. You know, yesterday afternoon, we invited all the kids' church teachers to our home for a lunch. We just wanted to celebrate them. We wanted to uh, encourage them for the way they're faithfully serving our kids in 2023. So we had a great time of just celebrating all their work, just rejoicing uh, in God. And as I was talking to them and as we were praying, I was reminded of today's sermon and I had to keep my mouth shut. It took me a lot of effort to not tell them that because they have been serving so faithfully and so sacrificially, God is going to prune them. I do not want any of them to resign on the spot. <laughs> it seems so counterintuitive, right? It seems, it, it just flies against everything that, every sense of how things work in our culture. It defies logic. Why would you want to prune someone who's been serving faithfully? We, I'm telling you, as a culture, I want to really invite you to really wrestle with this. We, we don't understand pruning as a culture. I'll tell you what our culture tells us. Our culture tells us that even if we serve very little, we must be celebrated. That's what our culture tells us. If we serve in the smallest way, our culture programs us and disciples us to believe that even if we serve in the smallest of ways, Christ himself needs to come down and give us a medal and appreciate us for our service. If we, if we are not appreciated, if Christ does not extend his, his sincere and heartfelt gratitude and appreciation for all of our faithful labor, we, we feel disappointed. We feel where is God. Or, we, you know, after a year of serving, the slightest hint of any challenge that God allows for, for our good. The moment we, we kind of experience that, we get angry with God. We, get, uh, in, we become indifferent to God. We just don't get 
We live in a culture where we, we expect instant appreciation. Instantly on social media. You, you should be, if you've helped someone, they better share about that on social media. And tell the world they've helped you. Uh, you know, you've helped them. Uh, otherwise, uh, what kind of a friend is that person? I did so much and he didn't even share, or she didn't even share one post on social media. Right? That's the kind of culture we live in. Now imagine, instead of receiving appreciation and celebration and applause for your faithful service, you receive pruning. Very hard to understand this. Culturally, we are just not wired to, to get pruning. It just defies the logic of our human sinful thinking. So, why does God prune? Why does God prune good and faithful followers of Christ? I read up a lot about the biological process of pruning. I understood a lot, but nothing really came to my heart. So I'm not going to use any of that uh, in, in the sermon. Because none of us, uh, you know, great vineyards are just not our thing. Uh, we, we can't relate to that. So let me try and find an illustration that, that we can relate to. So instead of the vineyard and pruning, let me use the example of cancer. What do we do with cancer? We cut it out so that the rest of the body can live. This we understand. Now let us, let, let me try and bring this home to our hearts with an illustration. A hypothetical illustration, but I think it's true for all of us and I'll, I'll be the first one to confess what I'm about to share is true of me. When we serve well for a few months, invariably we all tend to develop a sense of I have served well, so God owes me kind of a mindset. I have served well, so God owes me. This is true of every one of us. And this is sin. This is sin because God owes us nothing. We owe God everything. He created us. He redeemed us. And how much ever we serve Him, we can never repay him even a tiny fraction of what he has done for us. We are eternally in God's debt. And so to feel that God owes me because of my faithful service is a sin. And this sin is like a cancer. The more we serve with this wrong mindset that God owes me, the more the cancer grows with us. You see, this is a good follower of Christ serving, but this heart that God owes me has crept into our hearts. And at some point in time, as this cancer grows, this cancer will render us fruitless and ineffective. So what does God do? He prunes us. He cleanses us. He purges us. That's what the word pruning means. He purges us of these simple thoughts, of this cancer, so that we may become even more fruitful. And this pruning quite often is sometimes, quite often is through challenging life situations that take away our pride, that humble us and make us dependent on God. Occasionally, it might be your pastor. Occasionally. And without this pruning, 
our sin, our cancer will rob us of the joy of Christ. What started off as good serving without the pruning could potentially end up making us very bitter, living with a sense of God owes me kind of attitude. And that's why I said we do not have joy because we do not want to be prudent. We're all sinful. And we need to be prudent. Every branch that does bear fruit, he proves that it bears more fruit. So, welcome to the Christian life. This is what 2024 is going to be like if you're a faithful follower of Jesus. Let me close with one last thought. We all find pruning hard to believe. We find it very hard to understand. If I'm already serving so much, why is God pruning me? We find this so surprising. But you know, this is not the most surprising part of this passage. That God will prune good and faithful followers of Jesus who will be serving faithfully and sacrificially for years. That is not the most surprising thing in the passage. Do you know what is the most surprising aspect of this passage? The most surprising thing? I would say infinitely more surprising than the reality that God prunes faithful believers. It's in verse 5. The most incredible, the most unbelievable, the most astounding part of this passage, the truth of this passage, is verse 5, where Jesus says, I am the wine, you are the branches. That is the most surprising part of this passage. The most surprising part of the passage is not that God proves us, but the most surprising part of the passage is that we are in union with Christ. Christ is the wine. We are the branches. This is a glorious picture of our union with Christ. If you don't find this surprising, let me invite you to do something. Take a look at me. Get a good look, get a good look at me. Look at each other. Take a good look at each other. And look at yourself. Please. Look at yourself. What do you see? I hope we are seeing flawed, sinful, messed up, and imperfect people. How could we, sinful, messed up, you know the dark thoughts of your heart and I know mine. How could we who are so sinful, how, how could we as followers of Christ who still entertain such dark thoughts of bitterness in our hearts, how could we exist in union with the Holy Son of God. That to me is the most surprising, the most astounding truth and reality of this passage. Not that God would prune faithful believers, that God, Christ, would be in an eternal state of union, complete, whole union. He is the wine, we are the branches. How could this be? I know Christmas is over, but 
but I'm still not able to get over the beauty and the glory of the incarnation. Two steps were needed to, for, for us to come to be in complete union with Christ. In order for us to come to be in union with Christ, two steps were needed. First, God had to become man so we could be in union with Jesus who was born of a virgin. Second, Jesus Christ, the true God-man, fully God, fully man, living a perfect life. And he was both sinless and absolutely righteous in every way. And yet he was punished by death on the cross, to death on the cross by the Father himself. Not for his sins, for he had none, but for our sins. And we were cleansed, we were made righteous, we were justified by his death and resurrection. We have come to be in union with Christ through His incarnation and through His sacrificial death and through His resurrection. This to me is the most surprising part of the passage. That Christ, who is God Himself, would take on human nature and enter into eternal union with us. Now that we are in union with Christ, is it a surprise that God would take away one by one all of our sins by pruning us so that we might live a life of abundant joy? 